Well, a man was visiting his elderly parents when he noticed his father using these intimate, these tender terms of endearment for his mother. The old man would call his wife baby and sweetie and honey and darling and sugar. Well, this son was impressed that after 60 years of marriage, his dad still called his mother by these private and personable names. At one point in the evening, after the mom had left the room, the young man said to his father, he said, Dad, it's so wonderful the way you speak to mom. You're always calling her by these tender pet names. Suddenly, a horrified look came over the father's face. He explained to his son, son, I've got to. For the last couple of months, I can't remember her name. (laughs) Well, memory loss can be troublesome. It can certainly harm a relationship, especially our relationship with God. Forget the lessons that God has taught. Forget the blessings that he has brought. Forget the miracles that he has wrought, and you're headed for trouble. Remembering is the central theme of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law, and in it, Moses reminds Israel of the words and works of Almighty God. He wants the generation of Israelis who enter the promised land to remember the experiences of the generation of Israelis who exited from Egypt. Well, chapter 9 begins, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, which you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Goliath of Gath would be a later version of the Anakim. At the time, a race of head toppers, a horde of hulks lived in these fortified fortified cities out in Canaan. Palestine was like Flowery Branch. It was a land full of NFL-type, supersized people. No invading army was a match for these Anakim, and they had a reputation. Israel had heard, who can stand before them? But in verse 3, Moses explains the difference maker. Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you. As a consuming fire, he will destroy them and bring them down before you. On their own, Israel was no match for these giants, but they had a giant God who was greater than their enemies. It's like the elderly lady who was accosted in the parking lot by this huge, mean fellow, rough-looking guy. The situation looked ominous. The old woman was no match for this brute of a man. That is, until she reached in her purse and she pulled out a Smith & Wesson revolver. Instantly, the tables turned. This was the difference maker that the attacker didn't see. Israel, too, had a difference maker. God is going to fight for them as a consuming fire. And this is still the way God works. He challenges his people with tasks that go beyond their efforts with missions impossible to tackle on their own. He creates scenarios where if he doesn't come through, we're destined to fail. God will call us to tasks that force us to rely on him as the difference maker. Verse 3, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. 
Notice God had quick destruction in mind for these Canaanites. Remember, these people were so perverse that God knew that they would influence his people in negative ways. That's why he ordered a total and speedy annihilation. In his writings, archaeologist William Albright describes the lewd culture of the ancient Canaanites. He says that of the hundreds of idols that have been found from this time period, most are nude females in sexually suggestive poses, or they're male idols associated with homosexual cults. Canaanite culture was seedy and immoral. God promises to drive out the enemy, but he warns Israel, do not think in your heart. Notice, before a boast comes out of our lips, pride first begins in our heart. He says, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. God gave the nation Israel a land of prosperity, not because Israel was more moral, but because the Canaanites were more evil. God's blessing was granted more in spite of Israel than because of Israel. And you know, this is always the case. Never assume that when God blesses us, it's because we earn or deserve that blessing. To the contrary, none of us are good enough to merit God's favor. His gifts are always the result of his grace. He goes on and says, It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel will inherit this land for two reasons, and ironically, neither of them has anything to do with them. God gives Israel the land to judge the Canaanites and to fulfill his promise to Abraham's family. Neither had anything to do with Israel's goodness or with their charity. He says, therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means obstinate or stubborn. And in the beginning, Israel was just a little less stubborn than the Canaanites. Sadly, over time, she became more so. Notice the word that starts verse 7. Remember. And this is our responsibility to God. He commands us to recall his words, to remember his works, even to remember our wrongs. Often we forget the lesson that God teaches us as soon as it's been learned. It reminds me of the lady late for an appointment. She kept running back into the house to retrieve the items she'd forgotten. First it was her keys, second her purse, then it was her sunglasses. The third time she raced back into the kitchen, she said to her son, well, pretty soon I'll be able to hide my own Easter eggs. It's been said, memory is what tells a man his wedding anniversary was yesterday. Why is it our memory eludes us when we need it most? See, Moses warns Israel, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt. Until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, that is the region around Mount Sinai, 
You provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. Moses is about to remind them of the infamous golden calf. He says, when I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. You know, they say the human body can survive about 40 days without food, but only eight days without water. Obviously, for Moses to go 40 days without food and water, it means that Moses' fast was supernaturally empowered by God. Then we read in verse 10. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. And they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. See, they had failed to remember. Recall, these were the same people. These were the same eyes who witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle in the land of Egypt. And yet now they had forgotten. Now they're doubting God. He says, furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I have seen this people and indeed they are stiff necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Wow, what a temptation for Moses. Moses had also gotten frustrated with Israel. Now this is his opportunity to father and then further a nation of his very own. Hey, out with the Israelites, in with the Mosesites. But Moses loved these people. Instead of going ahead and letting God destroy them, he intercedes for them. He prays on their behalf. Moses begs God to spare Israel. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made for yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. They had swapped a miracle-working God for a metal calf. While the mountain burned with fire, the people of Israel burned with lust. The fire on the mountain represented God's holiness. While the people could see the fire, they still indulged not only in their blatant idolatry, but in the flaming lust that accompany that idolatry. Moses says, then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Here's a riddle for you. Who's the only person in history who broke all 10 commandments at a single time? The answer, <laughs> Moses. Moses broke the tablets to symbolize their broken covenant. Verse 18, and I fell down before the Lord as at the first, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. 
But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. Moses interceded for the people. God heard his prayer, and he spared Israel on behalf of Moses. Notice the two actions that Moses took. First, he crushed the idol, and he ground it into dust. This showed the people the total impotence of their idol. Second, Moses threw the dust into their water supply, reminding them that you become like what you worship. An idol pollutes not only the body, but also the soul. Well, notice verse 22, he goes on. Also at Taborah, which means burning, this was where God sent fire to judge the complainers of Israel, and Massah, where Israel grumbled about a lack of water, and Kibrov Hadavah, or graves of craving. Here the Hebrews long for meat instead of manna. At all these places, they provoked the Lord to wrath, Moses said. Mount Sinai was just one chapter in a long story of rebellion, which finally climaxed at a place called Kadesh. Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. Kadesh was the border town where fear overcame faith, where the people of Israel refused to enter the land God had promised them. Kadesh was the pinnacle of their rebellion. After Kadesh, this first generation of Israelis died in the wilderness. You see, faith takes courage. It also involves risk. God's best is attainable only if we're willing to leave behind the familiar. But instead of God's best, Israel chose the ease and the familiarity of the wilderness to the challenges of the promised land. And as a result, this first generation died in the desert. You know, I believe that there are some folks here tonight who are comfortable in the wilderness. Israel managed a nice life out in the desert. Man in the morning, water from the rock, clothes that never grew threadbare, feet that never resulted in swelling, and likewise, you too might have a good life, food to eat, a job that pays the bills. Your kids have plenty of clothes. You too are at ease in the wilderness. You're living a life of convenience. There's only one problem. God's calling on your life is about conquest, not convenience. God's blessing involves battles. You know in your heart God wants to win victories through your life. Thus, you too have a choice to make. You can continue to survive in the wilderness, or you can thrive in the promised land. You can stay put, or you can step up. You can press on, or you can pull back. You can enter in, or you can opt out. Sadly, Israel chose comfort instead of victory, and she ended up with neither. Israel's choice revealed what had been true from the outset. Verse 24 sums up their attitude with biting words. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Wow. 
truth hurts, doesn't it? He says, thus I prostrated myself before the Lord. Forty days and forty nights I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. Notice Moses is concerned. He cares about God's reputation in Egypt among the Gentiles. He doesn't want the pagan nations to assume that God is unable to finish what he starts. This is why he prayed for Israel and for God's deliverance. Chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, Hew, that is carve, for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. And you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and there they are just as the Lord commanded me. In a sense, this ark, this box that Moses constructed was God's only treasure chest. And look at what God considers to be his treasure, his word. It's his word. That's his treasure. And here God kept his word inside his treasure chest. Now, the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Benijakan to Morserah, where Aaron died and where he was buried. And Eleazar, his son, ministered as priest in his stead. The role of the high priest has now changed hands from Aaron to Eleazar. From there they journeyed to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jabatha, a land of rivers of water. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Rather than an allotment of land, the tribe of Levi lived in appointed cities, Levitical cities. God separated out from the land that he gave to all of the tribes certain cities in which the Levites lived, the Levites were the special tribe that were to minister in the temple and to minister to the Lord. Verse 10. As at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now Israel... 
What does the Lord your God require of you? And this is the question we all would be wise to ask. What does the Lord require of us? He answers that question. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Notice, for your good. Hey, God has given us his commandments. He's given us these instructions. He's caused us to fear him for one reason, one powerful reason, for our own good. God's not on some ego trip. You know, his interactions with us are for our own good. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants the best for us. That's why we obey the Lord. Notice, what does the Lord require of me first? To fear the Lord. We need to respect God. We need to give him the honor that he's due. Second, to walk in all his ways. We need to adopt his attitudes. We need to see life from his perspective. Third, to love him. We need to give God our attention and our affections. Fourth, to serve the Lord with all your heart and soul. In other words, to passionately do his will. And lastly, to keep the Lord's commandments. That is to study and then obey and apply the Bible to our lives. Guys, gals, here is what the Lord God requires of you and me tonight. Fear him, walk with him, love him, serve him, and obey him. Indeed, heaven in the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. You know, God could have chosen any of the earth's many inhabitants, but we're told, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is to this day. I mean, Israel was chosen from all the nations of the earth to be God's special people. He says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Male circumcision was a Jewish rite. It was the identifying mark of the people of God. Male circumcision was a minor surgery, but with major symbolism. The operation cuts back a fold of flesh, but the symbolism speaks of the humbling of the heart. To be circumcised was to make oneself weak and vulnerable and exposed. And this is the attitude that the Hebrews needed to maintain before God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Notice here God, that is Yahweh. He's called Lord of lords. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, Jesus is also referred to by this very same title. Obviously, there can only be one Lord of lords, which means Jesus and Yahweh must be the same person. This is another proof of the deity of Jesus. He says, and our great God administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember this command when we shake hands with each other and greet each other to church on Sundays. When we go out of our way to love a stranger, we're acting like God. 
This is so cool to me. The God of gods, the Lord of, the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome God is fair to the fatherless. He reaches out and loves the stranger. Realize our God is the God of the underdog. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. And to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God. Who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Wow. God in his grace had lavished amazing blessings on his people Israel. They had gone down a small band, a little family, and they had come back a great nation. Well, chapter 11 begins. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments. Always. Notice that word, always. That means at church, at school, at work, even at home. That means in the light and in the dark, on weekdays and on weekends, with buddies and with complete strangers, in the daytime and after midnight, in the real world and in cyberspace, we are to always keep his commandments. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. In other words, God is not speaking to the ignorant. He's talking to those who are eyewitnesses. He says of his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land, which he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots. How he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen very great act of the Lord, which he did. Five times in verses three through seven here, Moses uses this expression, what he did. You know, when men write history books, they focus on human achievements. But Moses views history around what God has done. Only God's works are eternal. And think of all the miraculous acts that the Hebrews got to see firsthand and up close. Israel had a bird's eye view of God's glory. They witnessed unprecedented miracles. And that's why Israel had no excuse. They were spiritual beneficiaries of so much. As the old saying goes, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong. And go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. To them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. Where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. Different conditions faced Israel in their new land. 
Egyptian farmers used foot pumps to lift the water from the Nile and irrigate their crops. But the land which you cross over to possess, the Lord tells them, is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. Notice rain, not a river, watered the land of Israel. See, Egyptian farmers irrigated their crops with water from the Nile, but Israel had no such source of irrigation. The Jordan River is more like a stream. The promised land was dependent on the spring rains and the fall rains. Ultimately, it was dependent on the God who sends the rain. Verse 13, and it shall come and it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain. This came in October, November, and the latter rain, which fell in March and April, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. If Israel obeys, God will see to it that they receive ample rainfall. But take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. You see, but if Israel disobeys and turns to idols, God promises to turn off the spigot. He promises to stop the rain. Now remember, in ancient agrarian Israel, God's kingdom was an earthly one. And divine blessing was measured in earthly ways, in terms of rainfall amounts and crop production. But by the time of Jesus, God changed tactics. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said of God, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom and spiritual blessings get measured not in inches of rain, but in outpourings of peace and love and mercy and grace and power and spiritual gifts. In the Old Testament, when Israel obeyed, God blessed them with showers. Today, God rains down on his people showers of blessing. Old Testament Israel produced citrus fruit. The New Testament saints can expect to yield fruits of the Spirit. You see the difference? In the Old Testament, God was building an earthly kingdom and therefore afforded earthly blessings. In the New Testament, Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom and thus his blessings are of the spirit. Yet having said that, let me also state that nothing should stop a believer in Jesus from praying for rain. For God does also bless us in tangible ways if we ask. I read of a pastor in Gutenberg, Iowa, who conducted an experiment where he put dirt in two pie tins and then planted soybean seeds in each tin. He then asked the children of his church to pray specifically for the seeds in one of those little bins. 
The other bin received no prayer. And guess which pie tin produced the most soybeans? Well, the one that had been the object of the children's prayers. This prompted Pastor Carl Goodfellow to start a prayer chain for farmers all over our country. Today, 5,000 people pray by name for 50,000 farmers. One of these farmers named Frank Livingood, he used to scoff at the prayers that these people would pray. That is until the day his son fell into a granary elevator and was miraculously delivered. Today, Mr. Livingood, he says of the prayer chain's efforts, and I quote, I'm not laughing about it anymore. I think the prayers are great. Hey, just because it rains on the just and the unjust doesn't mean that God can't direct a few showers now and then to the people that he wants. God will bless us, even tangibly so, as well as spiritually. But first, he wants us to ask. Are you asking for his blessing tonight? Notice verse 18. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth." The idea is to surround yourself and your family with God's word. Hey, spiritual surround sound. Man, I like it. Moses is telling them to let God's word permeate their lives. Today, Jews obey these verses by strapping phylacteries around their forearms and around their foreheads and kissing the mezuzah, which contains the little roll scrolls of scripture that have been nailed to the doorposts of their homes. But Moses' commands here are much broader than these Hebrew customs. God wants his people, our words, our ways, our walk, to be totally influenced by his word. What we do in our prime time, in our downtime, even in our time with our kids, we need to keep God's word as the target between our eyes. Live it out with your kids. Write it all over your house, in your gates. Base your whole life on living out God's word. That's God's desire for us. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, that is the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. Today, this description of land would constitute most of the Middle East. Modern Israel's claim to the west bank of the Jordan River is today contested by the Arabs. But you've got to understand, that's nothing compared to the land that God promised to give Israel. Here we're told that they are entitled not just to the west bank, all right, but to the west bank of the Euphrates River. That's about half the country of Iraq. One day, Israel will lay claim to all the Middle East. God promises that when they obey, he'll give them this land. And Moses continues, no man shall be able to stand against you 
The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you dread, tread, just as he has said to you. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Here was the capstone to the law that God gave to Moses. After laying out all of what God promised, he then added to it certain blessings and certain curses. He told them that if they obey his law, he would bless them. But if they disobeyed his law, he would curse them. He says, now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun that is in the west, in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moray? Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were opposing hills west of the Jordan. Later, Israel is going to camp there. And they're going to listen to the blessings from one mountain and the curses from the other mountain. These blessings and curses will be uttered from the mountaintops. Gerizim will be the mountain of blessing. It means fruitful harvest, while Ebal means barrenness. And that's the choice that God will give them. Fruitfulness if they obey, barrenness if they don't. Chapter 11 closes with a prediction of success for Israel. For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you will possess it and dwell in it. And you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. God will win the victory. But in return, Israel needs to be careful to observe all that the Lord has commanded. And we should be careful to do the same.